Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Young Tentacles podcast. My name is Pete Neal and I am joined by a very special guest today. I'm uh, joined by John Guillory. Now I've uh, known John for many years and um, and he helped me and he's helped me with my research over the years for the Vietnam War period. And uh, so it's been an, it's an absolute honor to uh, have him on this podcast. John, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Brilliant. So John, let's uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, where and when was you born? I was born in uh, Los Angeles, California, on uh, Christmas morning in 1946. Uh, my, uh, my parents had planned a party for Christmas Eve, but I, my arrival kind of interrupted that. So um, I was uh, raised in the Southern California suburbs, uh, kind of a typical Southern California upbringing, if there is such a thing. I was close to the beach, so I spent a lot of time going back and forth on my bicycle enjoying that aspect of the uh, Southern California experience. The beach area is pretty liberal, part of the, the Los Angeles area. And we uh, moved from that area in my uh, early school years into high school years and uh, into the inland area, which is a little more conservative community. Uh, in high school, I was pretty involved in, in uh, uh, a variety of things in school government and uh, in sports. Um, I, uh, I was not a real focused student. I was, you know, I was more of a kind of a you know, take it as it comes. You know, spent a lot of time with, uh, like I said, in sports and went from uh, graduating high school in uh, June of 1965 and went uh, immediately into college and uh, worked part-time. I wasn't a real focused student. So uh, I, uh, I, uh, didn't uh, apply myself maybe as I should. I, I guess in the back of my mind, I, Vietnam was always kind of out there. And it, yeah. The eventuality of, of um, 
going to Vietnam. And, and, and it was kind of one of those things where I thought, well, there's a possibility, and but it's almost one of those things, it's not gonna be me, it's gonna be the next guy. But I also thought, well, you know, I, I know it's gonna be me. And so I want them to live it up and enjoy life as much as possible because I, I know I'm gonna get drafted. And so, yeah, I, I, I hit the party scene. I, there's a lot of 60s stuff going on, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of cool stuff happening in the Southern California party scene. And so um, I, I, I embraced that. So I had a lot of fun growing up and, and uh, before I uh, went in the Army. And when I, I start seeing the eventuality of uh, Vietnam and uh, the draft, uh, since my dad was a, a Navy guy, I thought, well, you know, what I'll do is I'll, I'll join the Navy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I might get on a ship if I go to Vietnam. I'll at least be off uh, away from the, uh, the fighting. I'll be out in the ocean on a boat. So I tried to join the Navy. And um, unfortunately, for me at the time, um, the recruiter said, uh, he asked that I uh, had my first physical yet for the Army. I said, yeah. He said, well, he grabbed the paperwork he had given me and kind of tore it up in front of me and said, you know, you're going to be drafted very shortly, so there's no point in really going through this exercise. So um, uh, he said, well, you know, you're done here. So six months later, uh, I was drafted. <laughs> <laughs> If if he hadn't have stopped the paperwork, more than likely I would have been taken into the Navy and been a Navy man instead of uh, in the U.S. Army. So, oh yeah, life takes strange turns. It does, yeah. So what was so when that day come when your draft card come for the post? Was it more for you? You obviously what you were saying you you was ready for that draft paper to come through your door, but when it finally come, was you more like? It's time to get on with it now. <laughs> I had gone to the beach. Uh, that day. I had a, a little Sunbeam Alpine, a little red convertible. And uh-huh. I got on the beach that day. And I, I said, I, was, I, I had totally embraced the, the party scene. So I was down at the beach and uh, I got home that, that afternoon, late that afternoon. And my mom had this envelope. And... Uh, and you see, I was still living at home too, so I was enjoying that aspect of being a kind of a leech and a bum. And um, so uh, she said, uh, "I guess what you've got." And she handed me the letter, and it was my uh, it was my draft notice. <laughs> and uh, so I uh, said, "Okay." And it um, still didn't quite, uh, uh, you know, sit in that what it actually was going on. Uh, but yeah, it was my draft notice, so I. Had to report in a few days to uh, the draft center and count on up to uh, uh, Fort Ord, California, along the coast. It got sworn into the Army that morning in downtown Los Angeles and uh, arrived later that day and, uh, at the basic training and uh, in July of 66. And I think it was July 6th of 66, and that was the beginning of my... Uh, military career well so how so how old would you have been when your draft paper come through i was i think it was 19 i was uh i turned mm-hmm. yeah i was 19 and so i i just assumed that uh it was my time so but uh i, I tried to stay positive and uh you know when i so when i got up to uh to uh 
the basic training, I, I think the first thing I noticed was there was just the goal that I thought basic training was aimed at is the first thing was is to remove anybody's individuality. We, they shaved your, not shaved, but they cut all your hair off, gave you all uniforms, pretty much tried to convince you that you were, you were all the same, that you were, you weren't so-and-so anymore. You were now part of the U.S. Army. You were government material. You were no longer your parents' child. You, you were government property. Uh, and there was this thing they told you, you know, you couldn't, you know, if you got a sunburn, uh, you're damaging government property because you were government property. So, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And it was, it was, a, it was a psychological conditioning. And again, most of us that were drafted at that time, uh, there, you know, probably maybe 20 to 30 percent of us had some college background, uh, some college graduates. But most of us were high school grads. Uh, not a lot of worldly experience. We didn't know a lot about anything beyond what we would learn in high school, you know, and so forth. So, um, you know, this is all new to us. Things are happening around us. And uh, a lot of stuff was just very, very foreign to us. A lot of us were from the same neighborhoods and same areas uh, where we went to school uh, in our group and our particular basic training company. Uh, but then a lot of us were, a lot of guys were from outside. We were all thrown together and a lot of guys were, uh, were from, you know, different cultures that had never been around uh, anybody other than their own racial group, whether they were white or black or anything else, or Asian or Hispanic. And so I grew up in a, in a community that was pretty diverse. So it wasn't a big thing for me, but a lot of guys came from a you know pretty uh, you know, environment that just, you know, they never had people that didn't look like them uh, in their focus before. So a lot of these guys are learning some, you know, maybe breaking some stereotypes or reinforcing some stereotypes. So uh, uh, I, uh, I, I, it was a, a lot being thrown at us at you know at a fast pace that we were you know maybe not ready for in basic training. Um, uh, we most of us hadn't fired a lot of weapons. We were, you know we hunted maybe a little bit here and there. I had to have BB gun when I was a kid and maybe shot a twenty two here and there. Some of the guys had hunted uh, when they were kids with their dads and uncles and so forth, grandparents. Uh, I uh, we got M14s and you know the rifle range and you know learning how to shoot weapons and so forth and uh, I thought that was really cool learn how to break the weapons down and put them back together and do it for speed and so forth. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, in, in combat, you know, unless <laughs> I was trying to think of a situation where I'd want to take my weapon apart and put it together real quick, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was thinking, why would I want to do that and why would I do that? But I thought, well, there must be a reason for it if the army's teaching you how to do it. But, so, what, so what did you think to the M14 as a as a weapon? Oh, it was really accurate, very good. Uh, you know, having not had anything other to any other experience in, in my life, weapon-wise, you know, like never carrying, you know, uh, another weapon or not having hunting rifles and whatnot to compare to. Uh, it was it just seemed a little heavy because we had to. In Fort Ord, we went to, from our barracks to a, for a long run to a rifle range that was probably a couple of miles 
to the beach to do our firing and the qualifying. So the, it was a heavy weapon that we had to, to, you know, to carry on. You know. And so anyway, um, but it was a very, as far as weaponry, it was a really good weapon. It was very accurate. Uh, and it was, you know, a, a semi-automatic weapon. And, um, and I, I just thought it was kind of cool. Then I think at uh, one point in time, we got to use uh, M14 AR. And, uh, and I think that came later on when I was in advanced infantry uh, training, but that was also a really nice weapon and automatic weapon. But the M14 was good. Uh, I didn't get to see the uh, M16 until after uh, OCS. And uh, I just thought that that was an interesting weapon, but it almost seemed toy-like compared to the M14. With the M14, when you shot the M14, you really felt like you were shooting a, a powerful weapon because there's a, a kick to it. Mm -hmm. The M16 almost felt like you were shooting, like there was nothing really coming out of the end of it. It's, <laughs> I, and it's just again, my take on it. I, I'm like speaking for myself, obviously. Yeah. But it just was. But it, I, it started fast with me. It started a, a fascination with weapons. I, I had never didn't had met weapons before, so it um, it uh, was uh, an interesting thing. Uh, I was a I was always have been had a problem with my mouth if, if something came into my head sometimes it just kind of came out of my mouth and so I was kind of a wise guy I had a problem in in school with that as far as uh, being a, a disciplinary problem open mouth you know, insert foot. And the uh, same thing in the military. I, I had, uh, uh, we all had to do this thing. I'm not sure if the KP was called, was stood for kitchen police, which meant you had to do duty in the, in the mess hall. Yeah. Uh, food preparation. So there were various jobs you had the, from serving to washing dishes to some assisting in meal preparation. And the worst thing was the outside was washing dishes or actually cleaning the grease trap, which were, you know, when all the grease and everything goes someplace, there's something you have to scoop out and whatnot. It's just a gross job. And for people with disciplinary problems, if you were, you know, a wise guy or had an attitude, um, uh, you, uh, you usually got that assignment. That meant you had to get up like at four in the morning, get to the mess hall, do that job, and then whatever else you had to do. So I found myself doing that a lot because I, I always seemed to uh, rally again or against authority or challenge authority of the guys that they were taken out of our group, our peer group, and made put in leadership positions. That I thought these guys really weren't qualified to be in leadership positions. Like I said, I had issues with authority figures. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you must have been quite popular with your drill instructors then. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I had a big mouth and I was a wise guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and also too, I, as a kid, I, was, I wasn't a bully, but I was kind of a, uh, I enjoyed fighting. I don't know why. Maybe I wouldn't be a, I was, I was, a, I, I, I should have been, a, a, I was born too late to be in the WWF. Yeah. Uh, but I, I had a lot of fist fights in school. I could say my mouth caused that. Um, <laughs> But so I was. I did a lot of uh, push-ups were that were disciplinary. I did a lot of stuff. Uh, my drill sergeants uh, put me through all kinds of exercises for my big mouth. But at the very end, I I I found two things about them 
they actually liked me because I was. They said you you have you're spirited. You have you have uh, you're tenacious and you're you got you got uh, you got moxie or whatever the term would be for you got some starch. And um, and I found out too they're just doing their job. They're trying to prepare yeah. us for what was eventually going to be you know our future in the military. And so I think it actually. And I actually thought the training I got in every phase of my military career was exceptional. I, 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 uh, I thought it was really, uh, I mean, basic training was just uh, exceptional. Um, it was uh, an introduction to so many things, the living with people that, in a dormitory sort of environment, um, coping with people that you didn't really know. Uh, I, I never gone off to, to like a summer camp or whatever, so I never had to live with people. I have two brothers, a younger brother and older mm-hmm. brother. That was the only environment I had to, to deal with and you know to cope with. And when uh, we got along, like any brothers, we we duped out a lot. I mean, primarily me and my younger brother, we had a lot of fist fights and stuff. It was always this competitive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like I said, we we learned to. We work together in teams in, in, in basic training. Um, and then, then uh, my testing in basic training said, no, would you, uh, you qualified to go to officer candidate school? And I said, well, what's that? And uh, I said, well, it's like, uh, it's not West Point, but it's a six month course where at the end of the six month course, if you uh, uh, pass all the requirements, you would be commissioned as a second lieutenant. And I said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I just want to get in and get out and, and avoid Vietnam if I can and get out of here without being perforated or anything like that. So, yeah. no, it's not for me. And so I we said, okay. So I said, okay, uh, you have a choice. Of, you know, you're going to be infantry. So I said, okay, you're going to need light weapons specialist. And I said, that sounds pretty cool. I'm being naive and stupid. I didn't know what that meant, but that meant grunt, (laughs) ground pounder. Um, It means your cannon fodder. Uh, But uh, so anyways, that's fine. So then uh, today you're going off to to AIT after that for advanced, typically it's advanced individual training. This is advanced infantry training at Fort Polk, Louisiana, which is uh, probably one of the worst Army bases as far as just the environment. It's uh, in Louisiana. It's hot, humid. Uh, it's in the middle of swampy nowhere. Uh, the people that are civilians around the camp hate you. Uh, if you go to town, uh, if you're lucky, uh, no one there wants you there. So, um, but anyway, uh, that training there was was good as well. Um, and from there. Um, Met my uh, my company commander, who I have a great deal of respect for, uh, Captain David Davis. Uh, he was a former Marine uh, NCO, and left the Marines because he couldn't make rank fast enough. Went to OCS and became an Army officer, and uh, he was a, now a captain and the company commander of the the uh, training camp, a training company uh, at Fort Polk. And uh, he was probably the, or actually was the best officer I ever served with in the military. Because I saw him again in Vietnam, and I, and I knew of his 
reputation from he was almost legendary from all the words that I heard from uh, comments I've heard from the stories I've heard from people who served with him. Anyway, he uh, he convinced me uh, to go to OCS. He's reading a lot of conversations and he said, you know, this is probably something you should do. I think you you merit the to yourself and he kind of convinced me so I said well really didn't want to spend the extra time but I thought and I'd, I'd seen other officers I, I didn't really think were all that qualified so I thought well why why should I have somebody else telling me what to do in combat and maybe I should be thinking what I should be doing myself in combat so I decided to go to, to the officer candidate school and, and uh, Infantry school and became a lieutenant. And uh, interesting enough, my graduating class from advanced infantry training all went to Vietnam, or the greater majority of them went straight to Vietnam. Some went to other places in Germany and whatnot around the country, Korea and whatnot. Um, and um, so I waited there for, for orders to go to OCS and was an assistant uh, drill instructor for, I think, about a month, two months, three months. And then got my orders to go to OCS in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And then again, another, almost like major training again, another experience that I really wasn't you know, emotionally prepared for in the sense is that, you know, yeah, I, uh, I felt academically capable. I felt that I was smart enough to compete with guys. And again, um, I, I found out in my platoon, I was the youngest guy in my platoon, probably the least educator or higher education. I had some college with most of these guys in here. Uh, we had probably 50% of my platoon of 30 guys who were college graduates, and the others had you know, either uh, more college than me or almost you know, a couple of years or almost finished college. So, but again, I, I tried not to be intimidated. I felt I was, a, like I said, a pretty cocky guy and pretty confident. And um, and so I said, I'll, I'll compete. And um, so uh, I uh, got started and uh, we had a, a each platoon of the six platoons in, in officer candidate school. Uh, it's assigned a tactical officer that's kind of your mentor and your benefactor and your, he is your mother and father, takes care of you, keeps you on the straight and narrow. So anyway, our attack officer uh, reported to our, our a senior tactical a senior tactical officer. Our attack officer was a second lieutenant, and our senior tactical officer was a first lieutenant, a lieutenant uh, Stimist, who was a special forces uh, uh, officer in Vietnam and had a couple tours under his belt and had been wounded a couple times. And he was also a Californian. He was from Northern California, from the, the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, and for I no reason, no, don't know why, but he uh, saw me within the first few days we were there, and motioned for me to come over. And, and OCS, every time you move around, you've got to move. And when you talk to a tactical officer, you stand at attention and you're back up against the wall. And he said, "Okay," uh, looked at my name tag and said, "Gillery." Gillery, Gillery, you are Gilly. You are Gilly. From now on, you are Gilly. You're not Gillery, <laughs> Gilly. So said, sir, yes, sir. 
And uh, he said, you are now my cigarette officer. And uh, you know, what is, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. So that means you will carry a pack of Winston cigarettes. And whenever I want to smoke, I'll put two fingers up to indicate I want a cigarette. And you will bring me a pack of cigarettes, unopened, uncrushed, undamaged, a brand new pack. I'll give you money, you'll buy cigarettes, you'll always have cigarettes. And so anyway, that's what I had to do. So anytime, any place, wherever he put cigarettes, they would, everyone would yell, cigarette officer, cigarette officer, cigarette officer. <laughs> I had to run. So I had to protect, always had to protect at least two packs of cigarettes, just, just in case he wanted to smoke more than one time a day. I had to make sure that he had a cigarette. So in a way, it was, it, was, it was twofold. It was a good thing in a way because it, it kind of made me feel like, was, in a sense, I was recognized for something. I don't know what it was for, yeah. but it was very humiliating in another way because it was just humiliating. I had to, I had one time he, I was in the mess hall and he asked for a cigarette. I was outside in line, so I had to run in there and I ran up and ran up to him and he said, get out, get out, get out. He made me crawl the link back in the length of the mess hall to give him a cigarette. By the time I crawled in, I crushed the pack of cigarettes and I had to go crawl back out, go get a brand new pack of cigarettes, crawl back in with it in my hand so I wouldn't crush it and give him a pack of cigarettes. But anyway, the whole exercise of doing that was he thought that I would make a good officer, but it was a disciplinary thing or a... Yeah. But it was a, a character building thing, he thought. So anyway, mm. and, and also at, at another California, there was two of us, another cadet that he also enlisted to do the same thing as well. But so anyway, OCS training, again, was, except, I thought, was exceptional training, um, both academically and, and leadership-wise. And uh, so I, like I said, I initially felt so much... No, I, I, I could use the word inadequate. It may be out of place or insecure, but I had that feeling in, left me quickly because I really started to recognize that I, I compete at the level with everybody else and I felt good about it. And, and I don't want to come off as cocky and arrogant. I just, I'm trying to just describe how I actually felt and yeah, yeah. what was going on. And so, uh, I, uh, but the, uh, but the bottom line was it was it was a good experience, good training. Um, I, uh, when we were there, we we went through all of, of just a variety of types of training, uh, various types of assault training and training with mechanized equipment. And one of the things that was kind of interesting, there was a John Wayne movie called The Green Berets, and um, I'm not sure. If that... Oh, well, everybody on the. Uh... Vietnam living history circuit in the UK have all have all seen it. I think I think the amount of quotes I've heard from that film at events. Is, uh... <laughs> that particular movie, we, we had a block of instruction. It was uh, and, and it was very pertinent to the to our uh, eventual deployment to Vietnam. And that block of in, in, instruction was air assault and in combat assault. And we were we would get a block of in, classroom instruction and which most everything we did that actually had a physical component had a, a block of classroom instruction initially and then 
then that translated into a physical approach. Now, anyway, we went through our class of instruction and then we were going to actually have uh, actual aviation helicopters, the Hueys, uh, we would load up and do a, a combat assault. Well, at the time we were supposed to do that, John Wayne was there and he took all our helicopters to do the filming of the air assaults that they used in, in the movie Green Beret. So if I would have gotten killed in Vietnam for screwing up an air assault, you could have blamed it on John Wayne. And, <laughs> and his, the fact that he'd taken our training away from uh, <laughs> for his movie production, so we joked about that a lot. And, uh, yeah, but um, but yeah, the, again, the training in, that we received in in uh, Fort Benning in Georgia was really exceptional. And um, uh, I, I, the one thing again, I was still underage. I was uh, uh, now just uh, twenty years old now in, in OCS and in Georgia. In Louisiana, you could drink at 18. Not that I drank, but I did drink in moderately when the guys, older guys, going on. That was the one thing when you're trying to fit in, you're, whether you're, I, so I, the Army, I learned, I started smoking in the Army, started drinking in the Army, only to, to try to fit in to be, to run with the big dogs, sort of, so, so to speak. But uh, in Georgia, they have, you had to be 21. And so I'd go to bars with the, uh, the places with the, older guys and of course they would look at me and they'd say you know, these guys i'll say they'd ask what we're going to get for you they'd all say beer 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 and they'd look at me and go oh you, you like a coke because i i have always had a baby face and it's auto, automatic that i wouldn't get a beer and so uh that was one of the things i had to contend with is that uh i just uh i uh, i didn't uh didn't get to drink much of the fellas so mm. But uh, you, we, we all, you know, each segment of the training, whether it be basic training, advanced individual training, or the OCS training, um, you learned about things, but you also learned about yourself. You, you learned about what you could, what you could accomplish, uh, what you were capable of, uh, what, maybe where your breaking points were, uh, where, uh, um, where you, you know, where you could excel and where you needed work. Um, so I, I really, I really felt by the time I left OCS, even though as young as I was and, and maybe as unworldly as I was, I really kind of felt like I, I was in the right place at the right time and that, that, I, that I was able to, to do what I was trained to do. You know, and maybe I was just foolhardy and naive and, but I, I kind of felt prepared and, and, and ready to do what I needed to do. So, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, so yeah, I, I, I thought you know if I get sent to Vietnam, I'm, I'm I'm ready to go. Fortunately, I didn't go right to Vietnam after graduating from from OCS. I went to a, a company called uh, CDEC, Command Experimentation Development Command, where we tested a variety of things from tactics to weaponry, to uh, equipment, to uniforms, to just a variety of things for the military. And so uh, with the, one of the benefits of that was to uh, they used almost exclusively uh, Vietnam veterans, Vietnam people returning from Vietnam with you know six months to a year to go left in the military because they wanted to use veterans with 
the combat experience so they could actually get people uh, involved in these experiments that actually were veterans that could perform and do these things with the experiences they had in mind. And so I, in a way, I, I got two things. I got to pick the brains of guys that were veterans of Vietnam, understand the do's and don'ts from them, uh, plus become being coached by these guys. They were involuntarily uh, giving information about the do's and don'ts and so forth. First Cav, uh, 82nd Airborne, 102nd Airborne, Marical, you name it, every division that was in Vietnam, every unit that was in Vietnam came through CDEC. And the one consistent fabric or thread that was woven through the fabric of all these guys was the first Cav guys were always the sharpest. They always seemed to be the guys that were the most, they were the leaders, they were the squad leaders. They were always the guys that were, you know, and so I thought, okay, so when I get to Vietnam, I didn't tell anybody that, I said it was in my head. I said, that's who I'm gonna go with. I'm going to first, if I get a choice, I'll go with the first cab. These guys are all squared away. And they would always say, we got, we've got the best area, the best helicopters, best medic, best this and stuff. So I said, why not go with the guys who got the best stuff? So anyway, um, again, and the one thing I, I got two pieces of advice from consistently from everybody. And one was, listen, you're a lieutenant. You don't command my committee. You, you set the pace. You set the, you're the guy that's in charge. You give the orders. You, but you listen to the men who have been there and you're, you know, you're a new guy until you've got your feet wet, until you've got experience, until you've got a feel for what's going on. You need the input of the people that have been there that are skilled and are experienced. And don't think because you're a lieutenant that you know it all. And that was the one thing. And so just said that's a good good thing. It's a good point to, to, to keep in mind. And the other thing is I said, you will eventually get out of the field. And once you get out of the field, don't ever, ever, ever volunteer to go back. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, it's like the only like don't go from the frying pan back to the fire. Is it don't don't ever return uh, to that. It's just uh, it's kind of like uh, you, you'll lose your mojo. So don't do it. Anyway, uh, so but I thought those two things were really good advice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I thought, you know, yeah, listen to your men that have been there a while because they've been there a while. That must mean they've done something right. And oh, yeah, that's true. Things that are cool, already like volunteer to go back into the, you know, the jaws of death. So, anyway, I said, keep those in the back of my head. Um, and when I first got to, to Vietnam, the first thing I thought of, and the doors opened on the jet, and the jet was packed with two lieutenants and about 150. Semi-drunk, hungover, spec fours, PFCs, and privates that had partied all the way from Concord, California, through uh, Hawaii and Guam, and now that we're arriving in Vietnam, and they were probably scared to death as much as we were, but they had been drinking all the way, and they were out of control. But as that door opened, 
what, what waft into the plane as we were there. Me and the other lieutenant were the first to get up. Was this universal third world fragrance? If you want to call it fragrance odor, yeah. it just smelled like the air that when you burn things that aren't used to be burned, mm -hmm. whatever that might be, strange food, feces, anything you can think of, anything that, that would be incinerated that you normally doesn't get incinerated where you're from, like where I'm from, that we didn't incinerate anything. So the air has got smog in California, but nothing else. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe you know, if you're, if you live close to a... Um, a an oil cracking plant or a, a, a generating station, you know, a power station, you might get fumes or whatever, but it had this real, the air hung real heavy with this, you know, like I said, for lack of a better description, the, the fragrance of the third world. And so that was the first thing that, that kind of, uh, kind of hit me is that, 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 that uh, warm wraparound sort of a fragrance that just kind of a, enveloped your face and just kind of stuck to you. And so then, yeah, uh, so it had its it had its own its own unique smell then. Oh yeah, just but it's you know, and I and I've been to other places in the world. I've been to Latin America, different parts of Latin America. And so that smell is 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 uh in Latin America they, they people burn a variety of things for uh heat and mm -hmm. for cooking. And you know, from charcoal to wood to you name it, you know, fuels. Or, and so you get the air has uh, there are fumes in the air that are just not, you know, normal. That you when I say normal, uh, I, I just say like I said any country that has issues where they they don't heat with natural gas or um, electricity, uh, the people heat with odd combustibles, the air gets strangely tainted. So anyway, it was just an odd, odd, odd odor. Anyway, it did, yeah, it was just kind of an odd, strange, but it, and it, it, it kind of just like, I, I saw the smell before, I said, oh, okay, just kind of different. And then, uh, and so I, uh, I'm just thinking, you know, this is a, as you get off and you look around, you just, I think there's this feeling of disbelief, I think that you, mm -hmm. It, it is real now. I, I kept thinking, it's not real, it's not real, it's not real until it's real. And yeah. It's real. You know, and again, you know, like, if I was maybe 25 or 30 or a little more and had a little more experience, I'd probably just chalk it up and say, okay, yeah, that's it. Um, the one thing I noticed, too, and then getting off the plane, even with all the shuffling around and, you know, the murmuring of guys, you know, questioning this, questioning that, it was just extremely quiet. Just, you know, uh, quiet beyond the norm. It was just it was kind of eerie quiet. And so we we're all kind of, you know, just looking around. And then we heard into these buses, the military buses that uh, all have um, uh, like uh, screens on the, on the windows so you can't throw anything inside the, the buses and stuff. So uh, we used to all get on the buses and we just kind of suck it up and, you know, get it together and say, okay. And I'm thinking as I get on the on the bus, I go, oh, you know, I don't know anybody here. Nobody knows me. I'm my own best friend. So I, I'm going to take care of myself. And it's me against the world. And so I, was, I try to get that in my head. And, and I guess you're always trying to get this 
level of toughness or confidence up and telling yourself you're getting psyched. So uh, that was a that was pretty much about how I felt and what was going on. And uh, as we headed from the airfield to uh, a place called Ninth Replacement, to Replacement Depot, we went through Long Bin and just again a, a very third world feeling, a like marketplace where all this U.S. equipment. You know, I could look out and on either side of the road, all these storefronts that had ponchos and poncho liners and helmets and web gear. And this looked like a giant surplus store after surplus store after surplus store. I thought, where did all this stuff come from? You know, where did, where did all the, you know, military equipment, why is it all out here? And who would be, you know, who buys it? You know, just, it was just an odd, you know, again, you know, another odd sensation, odd, you know, discovery. So we uh, we busted took us to uh, the diners replacement uh, depot in Long End, dropped off to everybody, and the enlisted men went over to the enlisted men's quarters, and the officers, the two of us, went over to the uh, officers' quarters, and then uh, uh, that was it for the night. And there was a board there that had uh, we were just writers to so our names were on it. There was a board there, and they had like lists on the board, like a bulletin board. It had postings for assignments and then pickup times for the uh, officers that were where you were assigned to and when your pickup times were and where to be to get your ride to the uh, airfield uh, for where you were going the next uh, for when you were going to your, your unit. So anyway, I turned in for the night and then the next day started checking the board and heading over to the officers club, grab a beer. And that's all you did between that time is go to the mess hall, officers club, and Check the board. I think I was there for a couple of days till I got the first uh, first assignment. Looked at the board and got the first cab assignment. Said, I'm good. That's good. So uh, the first cab's uh, charm school, which is to they give you an orientation of uh, what's going on, what you're what to expect, what to anticipate, the do's and don'ts, some of the cultural customs. You think. Oh, and by the way, I, I, was, I took a course in at Fort Polk and, and before I, while I was waiting to go to OCS, I took a course in the Vietnamese language. So I know key phrases in Vietnamese. Um, I, I knew greetings and, and so forth and how to ask for certain things and whatnot. And then when I was at uh, Fort Ord as a lieutenant before I was uh, uh, stationed at uh, before I shipped to Vietnam, I was my quarters were at the language school in Presidio Monterey, uh, which there was a Vietnamese course there. So I, I learned a, a, a lot of Vietnamese. So not knowing if I'd be able to use it or not, but I thought it, it, it couldn't hurt. Um, so anyway, um, I was at the uh, at the charm school. And they give you an orientation, and uh, they were supposed to actually take you out for like to go beyond the wire. But that never really, we never got around to doing that. We had this thing where we had to go on like a, I think it's about a sixty foot tall um, uh, tower, where you repel off the tower, where you don't actually repel. They put you in a repel a repel mode with a rope and a D, D ring, 
then you actually just kind of jump off the tower with the slack. I previous to that, I had gone to jungle school in Panama, so I learned how to rappel in jungle school. So that was kind of a it was a, interesting and fun, but I, I, I'd already learned that, how to do that. I'm not really sure what that was about. It's, it was supposed to be about if you did that out of a helicopter, but you wouldn't actually jump out of a helicopter that way. Kind of a waste of time in a way. Anyway, after the charm school, we were given some more bleacher instructions and so forth. And then they had one area or one exercise where they had this, supposedly a company do a, an air assault in, uh, or a platoon do an air assault in to show how an air assault would run. Anyway, I found out later on, they did this air assault, the helicopters land and smoke air, guys went out and uh, you know, acted, acted like they were doing an air assault and going out, spread out, took the position of the ground. I found out like uh, probably a few weeks after that when I actually got to my unit, the platoon that did that air assault was the actual platoon that I would eventually command when I was oh, wow. company, which is really kind of serendipity or yeah. yeah, it was really interesting how that worked out. But um, anyway, so um, I eventually went from the charm school the assignment that my guys up in, in, uh, in on K, and uh, we were at a location uh, in, uh, called Fubai, it was uh, up near, um, not far from Way, and uh, in an area called the French Fort. It's an old set of buildings that the French occupied one time that overlooked the uh, a train trust on a bridge. And um, when I first saw the guys after I got out of the Jeep and perhaps reduced in a half and brought my equipment in and looked at everybody, it was pretty much like seeing guys in the States, the group of guys in the States that I had in, in the sea deck at Fort Ord. They all looked, you know, they were well, you know, they were clean, clean shaven, haircuts. Uh, their clothes were clean and you know, put together well. They didn't look out of you know, they looked out of place. They all looked like they were, you know, ready to soldier and they all looked pretty proper. They were a mix of guys. Most of the guys there had been to, you know, been in country for a few months to a few weeks to quite a few months. There were no uh uh the term is I'm sure you've heard it before, uh, FNGs, uh FNU guys, new guys. There are most of the guys there were all guys that have been there for quite a while. Uh, these guys are just, most of the guys who just finished up in an area called uh, the Oshaw Valley, which the Oshaw Valley was really a, a real uh, rigorous campaign in the foothills. Uh, it was a very, a lot of casualties, very difficult terrain, uh, and very, guys talked about the Oshaw Valley like we talked about this, a spooky haunted graveyard. It was a real creepy conversation. So when I'm talking, when it said the word Asha, everybody kind of looked around like they're talking like something supernatural. So it's a very odd mm. sort of story. So hard to explain, maybe, but it was interesting. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, my, the guys all looked, uh, you know, like they were, were ready to go. And, uh, you know, so I, um, and they, we first started going out on, on patrols. They all performed and, you know, professionally, and they seemed to execute well. They all were prepared and knew what they, uh, uh, they were supposed to do. Um, it, when you, as a leader, when, when you 
get to a unit, there's no free lunch. You, you don't walk in and because you're a lieutenant, you're automatically, you know, yes, sir, no, sir. You don't will respect. But you, you, there's a degree of performance you have to go through in a variety of ways before, you know, you're, the obvious thing is that they have to follow your orders because you're a lieutenant to an extent. If you tell them to do something stupid, they're, they're going to refuse. But yeah. you have to do, do things or perform in order for them to see your performance, in order for them to weigh it and determine in, 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 in a non-combat situation just to see if you're mature and capable enough to, to get the job done, and to lead them and to, to, to show that they, have, they can have confidence in you and, and trust you. And then when, when the, the stuff hits the fan, to know that, that you can take charge and do what it takes to get them out of that in the best way, in the best shape possible. So it, it does, it's not like a flipping a switch. You know, now you trust me, I flip that switch, now you trust me. It, it takes a while. It takes it's, it's mm. a relationship. It's like anything when you meet somebody, to, to cultivate a relationship and for a lieutenant or a leader, whether it's a platoon sergeant, a squad leader, or the platoon leader, you've got to create an environment between them, you and the men that they trust you. And then you trust them too. You have to know if you tell someone to do something, that they're going to do it because it could depend on their life and your life or your lives together. So there is this kind of symbiotic thing where if you're kind of interdependent on each other it's, you know so but it is one where you walk in there and you 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 know that you've got to perform and at some point and at this point i've never i've only been shot at from a distance and so the closest round that i ever had come to me was probably 30 or 40 yards away and it's like you know who knows you know we never saw that person so i never really had been tested by by fire so mm-hmm. and i don't know if they knew it or not yeah, and uh, you know, so now, so they're they're going to wait to see how I react. So yeah, it, it's like, I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is it's a, a process. So, yeah, it's that, mind, it's that mutual respect, isn't it? I think as well. Yeah, yeah you see, it's like, again, each each has to observe how the other reacts in a situation, mm. and. Uh, and, and the more the more dangerous situation is is you need to know each other's great uh, breaking points or what they're what they're willing to do, and um, and that's the again and that doesn't just happen by walking up and, and meeting somebody. So um, so it was a matter of having to prove yourself, and then yeah. also to if you have people and this is kind of, this is kind of a funny story. Uh, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll, uh, as I, I, I had been there about a, maybe about a week, and we were walk. I was walking with one of the guys, not in my unit, but another unit, and we passed a lieutenant, and the guy I was walking with, this enlisted man, saluted the man, and then uh, and addressed him by his name, and then his last name, and then, uh, and then as we passed, the enlisted man I was talking to, he said. Uh, that was Lieutenant, uh, that was the uh, bailout Billy. And the Lieutenant's first name was William. Said, well, why do you call him bailout Billy? He said, well, 
what happened was, is when he first joined the our platoon, he used this speech to all, I'll take care of you if you take care of me. We're going to kick ass and take names and you know, we're going to go and get the NBA and we're going to do this, we're going to do that and all this stuff. Then later that afternoon, they evacuated due to heat exhaustion. So they, they in essence, he bailed out. So he developed the nickname, Bailout Billy. So, because he never came back to the field. So I said, in my head, I said, Lord, please don't let me do anything that gives me a nickname that's, that's that bad to where, uh, you know, where everybody knows this guy now is Bailout Billy. But anyway, what it was, what it was, was the guy tried to create verbally an impression that you can trust me, I got it under control. And then later that day, it turned out he didn't. He didn't have any control physically. I mean, you know, maybe it wasn't his fault, but he tried to create an impression that I'm, I'm, I got it together, and he really didn't have it together. So sometimes it's better to. They keep a low profile and let things happen as well. Well, thanks, John, for uh, joining this uh, podcast. So we, we haven't got through all the questions, so there is definitely going to be a part two coming up. Yeah, well, thank you so much, John, for sharing your memories with us today. Interesting story, and it's all the little anecdotes as well, which uh, always adds to it. So, um, so... John, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. And uh, thank you, the listener, for uh, listening to us. And uh, we'll see you all soon.